1: Thanks for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio
2: Magazine,
3: the nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show.
2: Out front and out loud since 1974, I'm Chris Ann Eastwood.
3: I'm Wenzel Jones.
2: And I'm Abby Dees.
1: Before we start, I want to give a shout out to one of our all time favorite guests. George Decay turns 78 today.
3: Yay! Yay! And it's 420 Day, in honor of which the boyfriend made brownies. So after the show tonight, it's nothing but giggles and food programming.
1: (laughs) 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 And tonight we'll hear the first part of my four-part interview with
2: Representative Barney Frank. Boy, you guys were yapping. Four? Yeah, <laughs> four parts. Oh, well, I went to the diner in Palm Springs just a little while ago, and I'm um, going to take you to the Lucy and Gail party, and then we're also are going to go poolside at the NCLR party for a visit with TV actress extraordinaire Meredith Baxter. Right.
3: I love her, and I will plant tomatoes. Gay tomatoes. Gay tomatoes with cookbook authors Paul McCullough and Jeremy Stanford. You can't garden without getting your hands dirty, can you? But
1: no. first, <laughs> the national and international news from this way out.
4: I'm John Dyer the fifth,
5: And I'm Michelle Marie Gilgason.
4: With news Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending April 18th, 2015. Mexico's Supreme Court of Justice on April 15th struck down the ban on civil marriage for lesbian and gay couples in the state of Sinaloa. In a strongly worded ruling that called excluding same-gender couples from civil marriage totally unjustified, the justices wrote that the reason that couples of the same sex haven't enjoyed the same protection as heterosexual couples is because of severe prejudices that have traditionally existed against them. The absence of the benefits of the rights assigned to the matrimonial institution is a direct consequence of the prolonged discrimination that has existed against homosexual couples based on their sexual preference. The ruling, known as an amparo, is in response to the petition filed in April 2013 by a gay couple challenging the Sinaloan Family Code. There's no direct route to national marriage equality under Mexico's legal system. Gay and lesbian couples have been able to marry in the federal district of Mexico City since 2010. The state of Quintana Roo followed suit. Coahuila lawmakers opened civil marriage to same-gender couples last September. But Mexico has 31 states. Michael K. Lavers, in the Washington Blade, noted that nationwide marriage equality requires nearly 140 amparos from the Mexican Supreme Court or five from each state in which same-gender couples cannot now legally marry.
5: We told you last week about that lesbian couple in Guam who filed a federal lawsuit challenging the U.S. territory's ban on civil marriage equality. There have virtually been daily developments since then, and this update may already be old news by the time you hear it. Kathleen Aguero and Loretta Pangalinan filed suit soon after being denied a civil marriage license on April 9th. Rather than defend the ban, Guam Attorney General Elizabeth Barrett Anderson then ordered the island's Public Health Department, which oversees marriage licensing, to start issuing them to same-gender couples. But the Public Health Department deferred to the governor, who initially signaled that he'd have a decision by week's end. But Governor Eddie Calvo said in a statement on April 17th that, "...this isn't an issue that can or should be decided in a few days. Other jurisdictions have been grappling with this issue for years. Guam has only been grappling with it for days." Some cynics think that Calvo wants to punt to the U.S. Supreme Court, which hears oral arguments on April 28th on the marriage bans in four states. A ruling that could declare civil marriage equality across the United States and presumably its territories is expected in June.
4: Republican Governor Mike Pence's popularity has plummeted in public opinion polls in Indiana following the so-called Religious Freedom Law debacle, over which he presided earlier this month. Howie Politics Indiana pegs his current approval rating at about 35%. The Indianapolis Star pointed out that Pence's approval rating in October was more than 62%. The decline appears to be in direct response to his signing the contentious Religious Freedom Restoration Act to allow individuals, businesses, and groups to refuse to serve people they don't like, such as LGBT people, based on sincerely held religious beliefs. Opponents called it a license to discriminate. Following a firestorm of criticism from several high-profile Indiana-based businesses, employee groups, and many of the nation's largest tech companies, Pence and the state legislature quickly pushed through amendments to try to make the law less onerous. But some critics, including Bill Osterley, the CEO of Indiana-based consumer review website Angie's List, don't think the fix went far enough. Osterly announced this week that he's stepping down from his Angie's List post, to focus on trying to fix his state's badly damaged reputation. He denied that this is the launch of an effort to unseat fellow Republican Pence, who's up for re-election next year. Osterly told the State House file that he wants to begin the long process of repairing Indiana's public image. I haven't figured out how I'm going to do that, he said. That could involve helping somebody else run. That could involve working on legislative races. That could involve becoming a candidate myself.
5: The Indiana Economic Development Corporation and the Indiana Office of Tourism Development, both state agencies, announced this week that they're hiring a leading PR firm to strengthen Indiana's reputation, according to the Associated Press, as a welcoming place to live, visit, and do business. The state will pay $2 million for the campaign and could spend more on whatever additional advertising the firm recommends. The Indiana House doesn't seem to have gotten the message yet, though. After its spokespeople denied that the original Religious Freedom Restoration Act allowed bias against LGBT people, the Republican-led chamber rejected a proposal this week to add sexual orientation and gender identity to the Indiana civil rights law covering education, employment, and housing.
4: Louisiana governor and unannounced Republican presidential wannabe Bobby Jindal doesn't seem to have gotten the message either. He's strongly pushing a so-called religious freedom bill in the Louisiana legislature, that critics say is even worse than the original measure in Indiana. The Marriage and Conscience Act would prohibit the state from denying any resident or business a license, benefits, or tax deductions because of actions taken in accordance with a religious belief or moral conviction. These so-called religious freedom bills are thought to be an attempted end run around the widely anticipated U.S. Supreme Court ruling in June that will open civil marriage to same-gender couples nationwide. After taking a look at the Louisiana proposal, University of Virginia law professor Doug Laycock told MSNBC that the governor says it doesn't authorize discrimination. I have no idea what that means. It pretty clearly does. Dozens of religious freedom laws are in the works across the country, despite the bad press it brought to Indiana. Republican lawmakers in Tennessee are also currently fighting to make the Holy Bible the official state book. That's News Wrap for the week ending April 18th, 2015, produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles.
5: Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community.
4: News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by
5: you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison.
4: And I'm John Dyer V.
5: You can hear all 30 minutes of the latest This Way Out, including more news
1: wrap, on Stitcher Radio On Demand, on iTunes, or at thiswayout.org. Oh, now, people, I want to hear about those tomatoes, Wenzel. People,
3: people, people, it's spring. And you know what you do in spring?
1: Go Eat swim brownies. Nude.
3: You clean house <laughs> and you put in your garden. And the only thing I've ever tried to plant was tomatoes. And there are few things as satisfying so, we had the men who literally wrote the book, Roma Therapy, on Tomatoes, come in and talk about making your little seedlings thrive. Shall we give it a listen? Summertime. And the is
6: easy.
3: Yes, it's true. Summertime is actually here. And what does summer mean to everybody? tomatoes and so to talk tomatoes we've called in Food Network star finally chef Paul McCullough and producer director writer Jeremy Sandford to talk to us about the world of tomatoes so welcome gentlemen you are the men who literally wrote the book on tomatoes we did we We literally did. we love our Roma therapy book and we should point out that's Roma starting with an R as in Roma tomato now when should the tomatoes have gone in Well, in L.A., the season starts early. So mid-March
0: is when you can get your tomatoes in the ground as long as the plot that you pick for your tomatoes gets about six to eight hours of sun a day. Well, now, how big
3: is your garden? Because you guys are a lot more serious than most people.
0: That's a personal question how big my (laughs) garden is.
3: And how does it grow, sir? It
0: grows. Lovely. (laughs) We have a, a pretty large backyard with a beautiful avocado tree and an orange tree, and currently we have 22 tomato plants in raised beds.
3: And how many varieties have you guys gone with?
0: Out of 24, I think I probably have 20 varieties and four repeats.
3: And what is your favorite? What's your favorite, Jeremy?
0: I always buy the Aussie. (laughs) The Roma.
7: We actually have a couple of Romas this year. Paul has not had much success growing Roma tomatoes, but we have two that are actually thriving. The irony. The irony. Yes, after writing the book about them. Mm.
0: I've never been able to grow aroma that didn't have the blossom end rot, didn't Uh. just look like this stunted version of something that I wished it could be. But this year, I have two San Marzanos, and they are looking amazing. I brought Jeremy out. I'm like, honey, look, I think the curse is lifted.
3: And those are expensive when you buy them in the store, too. So nicely done. Now, to get back to varieties, because a lot of people are afraid if they don't, see a red tomato, right. like I've read that they can't really sell yellow tomatoes in Europe because Europeans just don't cotton to them. What is the difference between varieties beyond the cosmetic? Because I know there, there are white ones that actually look like organs out
7: there. Mm. Organs. Like, like <laughs> drain kidneys or something. I mean, like, it, uh... it looks
3: so, it looks well like a plant uterus. Yeah. That's exactly what it looks
7: well, like. Well, originally they were yellow. I mean, the very first tomatoes were yellow. And that's where the Italian word Pomodoro comes from because it's a golden apple. But is a difference
3: in texture and
7: flavor? Is it just... everything. Yeah. Everything.
0: Texture, flavor, the water content, the thickness of the skin, the meatiness of the fruit inside. Some people say, Oh, you should never just slice a Roma tomato and eat it on a sandwich. Well actually if I well, this year when I pick the ones that I've actually grown, they're absolutely delicious. And the green zebra stripes are a perfect example of a green tomato that As it ripens up, you just think, is that ripe? Is that ripe? And then as it's ripening up, it gets a nice yellow sort of blush over the top of it. And the stripes just go really deep green to the bottom to this really pale green on top. And it's bright and acidic and just amazing and delicious. You can cut some of those and top it on a piece of halibut. And... There's just so many varieties that we can grow here in California. The chocolate stripes and the little yellow pears and the beefsteaks and the Aussies, and they're ones that are shaped like peppers. Now, now what
3: are the Aussies? Because I, I know you mentioned that that's one of your favorites. Well, they're
0: generally big and thick.
3: We're talking tomatoes. We
0: are. Okay. Because a tomato is a weed, and it wants to not stand up. It wants to sprawl all over your garden, just keep sending out tendrils, and just
7: have as many tomatoes as possible. One thing you'll notice, the varieties of tomatoes, is the thickness of the wall. And that's why Romas are a paste tomato, which is Mm -hmm. one of the sort of four main categories. And they have a much thicker wall, which is less seeds and more wall. And that's why they use those for tomato paste, tomato sauce, just because it's a much thicker media tomato. Here's a question somebody asked me. The suckers, that little tiny
3: shoot between the branch and the main stem, they Mm -hmm. said, make sure you take them off. And I always mean to,
7: but then I run out of energy. To pinch or not to pinch? Exactly. What are your feelings, gentlemen? I'm a no pinch kind of guy, but I know some people like to do it, but I don't think you need to. Are you staring at Paul with...
0: As I pinch him, <laughs> I think you need to pinch a little bit because my raised bed only has so much space. And for example, this one plant that I have is really growing and it is like gangbusters. If I don't pinch off some of that growth, it's going to take over and shade my other plants. There's not going to be as much airflow, which is really important in your tomato garden. So I'd say pinch 50% of what you have.
3: Now, here's a to get precious. When people talk about grapes, they always like to talk about the terroir and the, the flavors it of- Brings from the local soil into the fruit. Do tomatoes actually do that to a degree that you've noticed, or is that just beyond twee?
0: I think they do. You know, our friends up in Ojai have an amazing plot of land, and they have all the space they want to need, so they never pinch, and they have really hard clay soil. And so they're amending a lot. But the tomatoes, we both grew green zebra stripes. His green zebra stripes had a distinctly different flavor when we went and tasted than mine did, growing here in my backyard on, actually, on Gardner Street, (laughs) and in my raised bed where I've amended the soil with compost and and, and worm casings and cows. Poop and miracle grow potting soil to give it as much as possible because without it, I'm just sticking a tomato plant in my ground in the backyard is not a favorable condition
3: for that plant. So, what do you do to keep pests away short of? Spraying everything with malathion, which I assume we all don't think mm. is a good thing.
0: And then, Dr. Earth has a really great organic insect spray. But I think, you know, like roses like to be fussed over. I think your tomato plant likes to be handled a little bit. And check it out. If you see some small pests, you get some of that spray on there. Pick off the big ones.
7: And it is a good idea, too, not to grow your tomatoes in the same area of your yard every year because then the pest can get established there.
3: Okay, now there's undeniably nothing better than a fresh tomato from the garden with just a little sprinkling of salt. (sighs) But what is your favorite simple thing to do that isn't quite that simple
7: when you've got a warm tomato right in your hand? And one of the easiest things to do is just, if you have Roman tomatoes, anything, cut them in half little oil, salt, pepper, stick them in your oven and just roast them. And it really develops the flavor and they get super sweet and the flavor is amazing. So generally tomatoes like to struggle a little bit. You don't want to Mm. overwater them Mm. because you can actually dilute the taste. Anyway, because this is The Gay Agenda Show, we have selected
3: for your edification a variety of tomatoes that you may find interesting. I found... A tomato called Aunt Ruby's German Cherry. <laughs> which sounds like a lesbian euphemism. This is a green cherry tomato. What did you find, Paul? I found
0: one called the White Queen. Ooh. She's a big, round girl with a
3: beautiful green top. I ran across one that shares its name with the fourth book in the Armistice Mop and Tales of the City series. It's called Baby Cakes. And it's a red cherry with, and I quote... A natural salty flavor. Mmm. Mm. What about the Beef Master? What about the Beef I mean, Master? that just opens up a whole...
0: I mean, everyone needs a good Beef Master in their garden. Beef Master. Beef Master. Jeremy?
7: And the Beef is good friends with a pink pounder. <laughs> <laughs> <Have> you... <laughs> and if you're lucky, you can grow both at the same time. <laughs> Are you familiar with a pink pounder? Is it large? Oh, yes. It's pink, and it's large. <laughs> That's all
3: you need. Well, I did run across one called Sappho. Sappho? Mm-hmm. It's a red cherry with a sweet acid flavor. Saffo. Mm. Sappho. Well, gentlemen, this has been a most satisfying little tour through the world of tomatoes. Thank you so much for coming out. Oh, well, thank you. It's nice to be here again. Well, it's lovely to see you all again. So, for more information, people go to romatherapy.com, and don't forget the hyphen between Roma
7: and therapy. Also, paulskitchen.com to find out more about Mr. McCullough. There you go. And if anyone is listening and would like to order the book, as a special, uh, extra special gift, we have this great aromatherapy magnet that we'll throw in there as well. And it's got all these measure equivalents, and it's wonderful for baking.
3: So, well, Why, I'm looking at one right now, and I can't wait to put it up on my refrigerator when I get home. So thank you again for coming out, Paul McCullough and Jeremy Stanford. And this is Wenzel Jones for IMRU. It's summertime, summertime, some sum, summertime, 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 some sum, summertime, 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 some sum, summertime, 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 some
4: sum, summertime, summertime. It's summertime
3: and there you have it, breathy delivery, a married couple with friends in Ojai, and botanical double entendre.
4: Everybody
1: has friends in Ojai, but...
3: Only the quality gays have friends in Ojai. I have in friends Ohio. in
1: Ohio. oh. Well, I've yeah. never been to, to Ohio. There. But what oh. I want to know is, have I missed my opportunity to plant my tomatoes for this year?
3: I believe this is the time to put them in. Mine haven't been in that long. And I think, and of course I did no research, but Tomato Mania is an annual event at the... Um, farm out on Burbank Boulevard, where you can get your seedlings. A wide variety of seedlings and are if, available.
1: I just have to say, if you don't like tomatoes, you have not had tomatoes
2: plucked straight from the garden.
3: It's true. I'm so spoiled. I won't even buy tomatoes in the wintertime. That is not a tomato. No. no. Well, I'm from Snob. the Midwest,
2: so tomatoes in the summer, is you live for, and they yes. taste so wonderful. They taste like tomatoes. If They are red. I, I appreciate the hothouse and all that kind of stuff, but really... Summer tomatoes are the absolute best.
3: And speaking of tomatoes, ah, thank you, you just ah. stole my line, Mr.
2: <laughs> Boy. I tried to get to uh, it yes, before he did. No. I, I was just at Dinah a couple of weeks ago in Palm Springs, the fabulous woman festival that used to honor a golf tournament named after Dinah Shore. Now I don't even know people know what golf is.
3: <laughs> or Dinah Shore. But what they
2: do know is that it is time to have a terrific Party with lesbians, young and old. I started off dropping by the Lucy and Gail party, and they have lesbians of a certain age, of which I am a member. And let me tell you, these gals know how to so have a good time. Twenty something. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. These gals know how to have a good time. <laughs> At the Lucy and Gail party here in Palm Springs for the Big Dino weekend and I'm talking with Gail Christian. Lucy and I promote parties for uh,
8: older women.
2: That's me. <laughs> this is my kind of party. The music is awesome. That's right
8: and they aren't so old when they get on the floor are they?
2: Let me tell you I saw one couple and I tell you the younger one of the couple took a break during one of the dances the older one was still out there. I said I tell you what you can't keep up with her.
8: That, that's sort of great because most of the parties when we, uh, Lucy and I moved to Palm Springs in 2003, Dinah Shore Weekend shows up and all the parties are really for very young women and all the older women are sort of sitting at home drinking alone. And we said, you don't have to do that, honey.
2: And they're getting younger and younger. I was just that's at right. the pool party today. I said, oh my God, there's babies here.
8: So that's right. We were, uh, we vend at the Dinah and we see how young they are. My friend Michelle Triple X is having a party across the street and it's probably 24 My average age is probably 60.
2: And let me tell you, the dance floor is packed. And it's that great
8: event. And we do this, and it's wonderful. And this is actually a promotional party for the Palm Springs Women's Jazz Festival, October 9 through 11. We're bringing in more than 30 women musicians. We decided to try to redefine a women's music festival, and we decided to go with jazz. We're opening with Diane Schur on Friday night. On Saturday night we got Nona Hendrix. We're gonna go to a smooth jazz, sort of R&B. Uh, we're doing a uh, tribute to the divas. We're doing Anita O'Day and Etta James. Oh we're my! Knocking God. them out! We're knocking it out of the park. We really are. This is wonderful. I mean, it's gonna be good. We really want uh, women to come. We want men to come. We want everybody to come. It's jazz, you know.
2: You gotta get Sharon Jones to come in. You gotta get all Dorma no, Jean back. That's be- right.
8: That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you know. But this is probably the
2: oldest diner party in town. Well, let me tell you, it may be old in numbers, but it is young in spirit. I mean, this looks like it's not going to break up before too easily. No,
8: no one's stopped. Absolutely not. Everybody stayed home and took their emergency and took a nap.
2: <laughs> And everybody's eating good. The food looks awesome and everybody's having, you know, everyone's drinking for energy. What's KPFK doing here? What what are you doing down here? I am I M R U. It's KPFK's lesbian LBGT show. LGBTQ show. We're on once a week Mondays at 7 PM and I'm here just getting as much as I can. I just talked to Lily Tomlin earlier tonight. And I talked to Meredith Baxter earlier, and I talked to the head of Equality California. I'm trying to talk to everybody I can. And I'm, no. and I'm finishing up with talking to you. No, that's great. And I want you to uh, you know, be
8: our guest at the Jazz Festival. And see what happens over three days when a bunch of
2: old babes come out. I can't wait because I'm a drummer, and you know, and so I love jazz drumming and I love jazz piano, and I can't wait. Mary, you know, the great Marion McPartland just passed, you know, okay, and I love her.
8: You know, last year we did a tribute to Marilyn McPartland. We brought in three piano players, who were marvelous. And both uh, Lucy and I uh, were our former uh, employees of Pacifica Radio, uh, which we remember fondly, and we. Wish Pacifica well.
2: Well, thank you very much. I hope you're having some nice little jazz trio, jazz quartet stuff. I just love that quartet, just sitting there. Nice little club late at That's night right. and just some nice yeah. ja- nice jams. That's right. It's going to be great. It is. We're going to have, uh, we're bringing in Diane Shore with a Women's Big
8: Band. And we're bringing in just, we're having Latin jazz on Saturday. Is there dancing? And there's always dancing. Oh. Always dance. Oh,
2: I cannot wait.
8: And remember, we're the dancing crowd. We came from the 60s and 70s. We know how to dance.
2: Hell yes, we do.
8: <laughs> and we can still sort of have sex once a week. So
2: <laughs> Once a week, you're doing better than me. <laughs> you're doing better than me. Thank you very I, much. That the
7: diner.
3: Well, I am very impressed to hear her say the average age was 60. Because or the once that, a week thing. Well, because if that were gay men, they would have gone, the average age is 39.
2: Well, and that's why they weren't there, because they just can't handle the good times with the old broads. I know. what It was an awesome time. And uh, let me tell you, they couldn't have been nicer. I'm very fired up for the jazz festival. It's going to be uh, around uh, Columbus Day weekend in October. It's going to be really cool. Really, I have really to cool. tell you, I'm I'm impressed by this
1: because there's no part of me that thinks, oh, I should go down there because I am automatically assume I'm too old. I'm you know I can't go to some rave. But it sounds like there's really something for everyone. Well, here's going the on.
2: deal. You know, um, Mariah Hansen, who does the Dinah. She you know she has the big party at the hotel and so forth. But there's a lot of things going on. Brian uh, Hansen, actually she owns the Dinah. That the name. Name the dinah but the weekend itself i mean especially the older women they're going to the golf tournament during the day they're watching the golf and so at night all there's bars and everything everybody's having something going on so something for everyone so get a room play some golf watch some golf and have a really great time with a lot of fun fun gals maybe next year anyway still to come my chat with barney frank and i'm going to catch up with another palm springs goer meredith baxter in
9: palm springs and don't go away we'll be right back J.C. Leyendecker and his famous paintbrush, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Joseph Christian Leyendecker's artistic career spanned more than 50 years. He is best known for his Saturday Evening Post and Collier's weekly magazine covers, as well as arrow collar and shirt advertisements. Born in 1874 in Germany, he immigrated to America while a child. At 15, he apprenticed himself to a Chicago engraving company and took lessons at the Chicago Art Institute. In 1905, his ad concept of the Arrow Collar Man turned Arrow into the largest shirt brand in America. Women swooned over Landecker's ads of handsome young men. In fact, it was his lover of 49 years, Charles Beach, who was the model of the Arrow Collar Man, the symbol of American sophistication, masculinity, and style. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Alyssa Solomon.
10: Hello, I'm Barney Frank, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974 on KPFK-FM. 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridcrest China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org.
1: I am you?
8: Why are there so many fights about marriage? And who's standing side? by side. Weddings are nightmares. People want them, so who cares if it's two girls or two guys. Either way, marriage itself is a challenge. I've failed at two, almost three. Someday we'll all get the Rainbow Connection
1: and all good. Welcome divided. back. You are listening to IMRU Radio.
2: I'm Abby Dees. I'm Chris Eastwood.
1: And I'm
3: Wenzel Jones.
2: Got to go to Dinah and talk to somebody else really famous and newly out and wonderful. I got to speak at the NCLR Pool Party with Meredith Baxter. Dinah
7: Dinah, Dinah Dinah, Dinah, Dinah.
2: Dinah. here standing next to someone who I'm just so excited I saw you. This is Meredith Baxter. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks, Chrisanne.
11: You are here at the NCLR Garden Party. Are you a big supporter of NCLR? Yes, I am. I, you know, I came to one of these um, and was invited by someone else about three years ago. I didn't really know anything about it and I I'm heard Ket Candle speak and I was gone. I was so persuaded by her passion. Not that, you know, I was always in support of lesbian rights, but the way she talked about how they attack the legal issues and how they draw on all these resources and how they need funds to keep their people who are all across the country working on these cases, and they were working on all the marriage cases at the time, and if you look how one state after another, and I can't say it's all NCLR, but they're working with Lambda and lots of other, and I was, well, anyway, we we came nutso followers ever since then, so we always make this event. It makes you think, like, why didn't I go to law school? You know, why am I not doing this? Well, I was traveling with her for a while, being, you know, someone to help bring out people. And I got to hear her address a law school, some people who came in from, the, out from their classes, and to get to listen to her talk about these subjects. And she was amazing. So clear. Can put a, put a topic in, in language that is so accessible. It was just thrilling.
2: Just thrilling. So, well, it's a very nice event here. A nice fundraiser for NCLR. Of course, they have filed an amicus brief and so forth. We've got gay marriage equality is being argued again in front of the Supreme Court in a couple of weeks.
11: Yeah, that's and that's
2: when it's going to just turn it
11: all around. We've known it's coming, and you know, thank goodness they finally waited. My understanding was that the, the Supreme Court doesn't like to get ahead of public opinion. They don't want to create public opinion, so. So that's fine, and they took their time, and we're going to be here. Yeah, Brown versus Board of Education took
2: a hundred years after the end of slavery, so they, sometimes they drag their feet on these things. Congratulations are
11: in order. You were just nominated for a Daytime Emmy. Yeah, yeah I was really, really pleased about that. I was uh, a guest on The Young and the Restless for a few months, and it was just so much fun. I don't know if you know anything about how they work on these soap operas. I do know it's like long days,
2: and the turnaround on script is unbelievable.
11: Well, I tell you, in, when I've done features, They will shoot maybe from two to four pages a day. This is just uh, general. You know, obviously not all movies are like that. But the ones that I was on, it it was very slow pace. On a TV movie, they will shoot about six to eight pages a day. On soap operas, they take. 60 pages a day so you get your lines and you have to eat them you have to know them they have to be yours by the time you're on that set and at any other set when you finish your scene you go sit around you have smoke smoke you have a cup of coffee talk to people take a nap I go back to my dressing room and I be working on my lines because there is no there's no breath you have to know it you just said 60 right six zero sixty pages a day
2: yeah it's an hour show. Now, do they have teleprompters or cue cards, or are you just supposed to know it? You just know it. You know, some great actors started out in daytime dramas, because it's quite the recent Julianne Moore, who just won an Oscar. She was on Another World for years. It almost seems to me like they should say, you know, everybody right out, of, right out of theater school should just do a year out of soap just to, you know, really put, put through the paces. Because the
11: sad truth is that it's, it's their the stepchild of all of the methods of performing. It's like, oh, oh this on the soap.
2: I'm a huge soap fan, huge. I'm currently having a renaissance with General Hospital right now. There's a great gay storyline. And I talked with the uh, executive producer and it's these three guys and they're gorgeous and they're just rolling around in bed all the time. It's just so wonderful. And they're doctors and nurses and it's fabulous. Tell me about your character. Were you evil and are you still alive?
11: Yes, I was afraid that my character had a heart attack, so I thought, oh, they're killing me off. But they have so many characters on the shows, they really have to be responsible to them and develop the storylines for them. And I was just sort of a fly-by-night. But my hope is that they'll bring me back.
2: Nobody dies in soaps. You can be blown up, your body can be buried, and you will live. Soap opera is the Lazarus, it's the Phoenix, everybody rises, nobody is ever dead.
11: And the people are darling. People who've been on that show for 30 years, and they... How do they do it? How do they stay alive? Well, and you wonder because you think of like
2: people like Susan Lucci and like all these people who've done this so long and done the pace that you are describing. I mean, they are the hardest. You think Summer Stock was hard? You know, you think when you're when you're so shooting. sorry <laughs> Yes. I mean, <laughs> Tell me when when you do have downtime when you're with, with the in backstage and, in daytime. Do they do you share theater stories? Where you're in the makeup trailer? Do you guys talk about all oh, the time we did? You know, on your toes or the time not we did uh, Brigadoon. You know
11: not I mean. on soap. They're You know, we're rehearsing. I'm not kidding. We are running lines, either working on it in a room or we go to find the other actors and say, let's run the lines. And they're they're always ready to. So ain't no sharing nothing.
2: Ain't no sharing nothing. It was so wonderful to talk with you. And uh, I just have to ask one thing. Our listeners, a lot of kids out there, young folks, not sure whether to come out yet, kind of feeling nervous about it. What can you tell those folks out there who are not sure if they're ready to come out?
11: You know, I'm not in the advice giving business. I think that's always questionable. But... I think that whatever we think is going to be the result, it's really that. It's always going to be something else. I, I was terrified. I thought it was going to be the end of my career, which was really slowing down anyway. You know, because I'm you know I'm older than 40. Yes, so you. That's going to you know it's it, things aren't great for women over 40. Although things are starting to pick up. Yes, they. So. I, I thought that was going to be the end, you know, go from America's mom to uh, lesbian? How does that work? You know, I just I didn't see anyone understanding. So I was fine to keep it under uh, under wraps. And then we, I was on a cruise when this one was on stage. And this is radio. Who's that one? Oh, I'm sorry, Suzanne Westenhofer. Happens to say, at the end of her performance, she said, just to everybody in the audience, if you're not out, come out. And I hadn't been out at that time, and I turned to Nancy, my who is my now wife, and I said, you know, I got to... I gotta do this. Because I, I didn't like the idea that I was hiding, so I thought maybe I'll, well, I'll put a, an announcement in the paper, like a birth announcement or something. I didn't know how people did it, really. And then, of course, events overtook me, and it was, you know, the, the rag sheets got hold of it, and so it became, oh, the Today Show and uh, People Magazine. That's how people come out. I didn't know. Always the last to know. But I thought it was gonna be traumatic, and it was, but afterwards, I will say, I felt so relieved. I felt unburdened. You know, and that's, people have no idea. You have no idea how much better you will feel when this is no longer a secret, you dear person that is so struggling with this. That's all I can say. You know, I'm not going to say it's all flowers and that you'll have difficulties. But when it's not a secret anymore, it's, it's, uh, it is freedom.
2: Thank you so much. That the And that was Meredith Baxter, who was a delight. And wouldn't that be nice if there was a section of the paper for coming out? Yeah, just to announce,
1: you know, or your parent, like, you know,
2: Mr. and Mrs. uh, So-and-so
1: announced the coming out of their daughter, but it's not a debutante Because they
2: don't put engagements anymore. I grew up in a small town. They used to put engagements in there. They used to put, like, a you know, 50th wedding anniversaries and all that kind of stuff. And even, you know, only the New York Times does wedding announcements They do. (laughs) You know, I— I am so happy. I still get happy after all these
1: years hearing someone in a position like hers get it and have such a sense that, that not only is it about her process, but her coming out means something to everybody else. So I'm that, just glad she said that at the end. Yes. You know, yeah. it just makes me feel good that there's always people who feel that sense of well, it's commitment. It's taking
2: responsibility for your place in this world. It's, it's it's like, you know, it's like the great financiers like Carnegie and Rockefeller using your riches for the betterment of society, yeah. using your famousness.
3: But despite well. the fact she's come out a lesbian, I still have a little bit of a crush on <laughs> her. <laughs> we, 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 you, you can could. still you have crushes have. on lesbians. <laughs> you know, it's okay.
1: Well, speaking of celebrities, um, we got very lucky and we had former representative Barney Frank in the studio this Saturday, and I got to interview him. And I was very intimidated, but he put me at ease. Whether you agree with his politics or not, he is a very interesting man worth listening to. And so here is part one of our four-part interview with Barney Frank. This is Abby Dees, and I'm about to talk with one of the most influential personalities in American politics— former congressman from Massachusetts, Barney Frank. As a member of the House for 32 years, from 1981 to 2013, Mr. Frank was a key player in the history of LGBT civil rights, as well as a committed advocate for civil rights in all its forms, free speech, and fair economic policy. He's just penned a political memoir called Frank, A Life in Politics, From the Great Society to Same-Sex Marriage. Barney Frank, welcome. Thank you. I have read your book, and it's not a tell-all. It's not like the loves of Barney Frank. It really is, to me, kind of a defense of old-style progressivism and a vindication of the word liberal. What's funny to me is that what comes across in this book is that you are clearly an idealist and a believer in politics, but your biggest criticism of the left seems to be that the left is not willing to be pragmatic and not willing to make concessions in their idealism. Would you agree with that?
10: Yes, and I appreciate the way you phrase that, because people who act as if pragmatism and idealism are opposites, I think, are doomed to frustration and futility. Obviously, you start with ideals. I don't think you have any business in politics and trying to use government to coerce people, which is what government ultimately does, unless there's a moral purpose, unless you're trying to make things fairer, trying to make things less unequal. But once you have a set of ideals, if you are not realistic about implementing them, then what good are they? All they do is make you feel good. Ideals that you have that you don't really effectively try to implement They're kind of a warm bath for you, but they don't feed a hungry child or clean up a river or do anything that's useful.
1: During the Don't Ask, Don't Tell debates, you formulated a rule that sort of reminds me of the warm bath that you're talking about. And you said in your book, if you care deeply about an issue and are engaged in a group activity on its behalf that is fun and inspiring and heightens your sense of solidarity with others, that would be the warm bath, I think, you are almost certainly not doing your cause any good.
10: (laughs) Yeah, look, it's much easier to go to a rally where everybody agrees, where you can have a nice uh, drum circle, <laughs> where you can sing songs and uh, and, and reassure each other of our, of our virtue, but that doesn't advance the cause. Now, on the other hand, it's a mistake. You're not doing much by going out and yelling at those who most disagree with you. You write them off. But our job, if we're trying to improve society, is to persuade people who are amenable to persuasion but aren't yet with us and try to... Caltra arguments in terms that will appeal to them. And one contrast i like to draw is between the March on Washington in 1963, which was under the general auspices of A. Philip Randolph with Martin Luther King as the star speaker. The chief strategist was a gay man, Bayard Rustin, one of the great heroes who only recently has gotten the recognition he had. And Bayard Rustin was a genuinely zealous idealist who was also very smart. And what he did was to structure that march So it had the maximum appeal to white people so they could say, look, do you really want to be in a country where we African-Americans are treated so badly? And here's what you can do to help. Then you had the March on Washington that the LGBT movement had in 1993, which was a big party, which was a chance for us to indulge our feelings and to have a good time. But unfortunately, in some ways, alienated people. And for those who say, well, why are you worried about that? That's not a true militant. John Lewis, who was one of the great moral heroes of my generation, who was beaten almost to death on behalf of civil rights 50 years ago, people are seeing those movies now, makes it very clear. He submitted four or five drafts of his speech for the March on Washington to be vetted because they didn't want him to say things that were going to alienate people They wanted to get their point across. And the purpose of all this is to be effective, not to give release to our emotions.
1: You mentioned something at the 1993 march in Washington that I remember so clearly. And as a lesbian activist myself, it sent chills through me. And it was when a comedian got up in 1993, a woman on C-SPAN, I believe it was the first time that we'd gotten any sort of national uh, attention in the media. And the first thing out of her mouth, at least that's how I remember it, was, ah, Hillary Clinton, she's the first first lady you'd want to F. And I was very happy that you mentioned that because I've been wondering if I had just made this up. No,
10: you're exactly (laughs) right. And I, I, I again, analogize it. Suppose Red Fox, who was a very funny man, and the comedian in question is a very funny woman, oh, yeah. and she's, she's actually been a crossover. She's been a major Broadway star. She's, she's very, a very funny. a very successful woman. But this was self-indulgence. This wasn't helping. The purpose of the march was to get support for repealing the ban on gays in the military and for anti-discrimination. And how does it help to... Drive away some people, and I guess the analogy would have been if Fred Fox, who's a very funny, uh, was African American, had gotten up, and the first thing he said was how much he would want to have sex with Jackie Kennedy. <laughs> yes. If he'd have done that, I guarantee you <laughs> that, that A. Philip Randolph would have had him thrown into the reflecting pool head first. So, yeah, that was the contrast. Uh, and again, there's a time for that. Comedians, that was what I
1: was going to ask. Is there, after there a the time? Movie, for yeah, that?
10: sure. After the march is over, let's have our own parties. I'm not saying we don't have fun. Of course you have fun. But that's not your political outreach. You want to make your political point, then you go to our own gatherings and, yeah, with some other people. And that's when you get your emotions and and, and have your humor go forward.
1: But looking at the LGBT movement in particular, can you also see that many of us have experienced being in the closet? We probably all experience being in the closet at some point.
10: Not anymore, I think the— The kids are coming out at four. They're coming out, but many still are.
1: Would you say that there has got to be some power, though, in being able to stand up and claim that here I am?
10: But that's true. No, in the first place, that was very important. And I'm not saying that there isn't a need for the demonstrative side. I was all in favor of the March on Washington 63. It's what you choose to present. It was very important for blacks to say, well, let me go back a step. In 1964, in the summer, I went to Mississippi as part of the Freedom Summer. That was to be visible and to illustrate to white America that black people in Mississippi were not allowed to vote. It was very important for us to be public about that. Early on in the movement for LGBT rights, yeah, we were the hidden minority. It was very important to say, we're here and you've got to pay attention to us. So the argument is not against visibility. It's what's visibility for. Visibility as an emotional release. No. Um, yes, being able, uh, I, I, when I came out in 1987, we were still in an early stage of things, I made a point of going with my then boyfriend places and uh, holding hands and dancing because we wanted to, to do that, but we didn't do it in a way that was calculated to offend. That's that's the difference. That yes, I, I want to be affirmative about that. And uh, it is also the case that we have a right to enjoy ourselves. But... Those are done in separate venues from your political venue. How
1: do we get that point across to our community without alienating part of our community?
10: Well, it's a two-step thing. I accept the fact that I alienated some people. But, you know, people in my business, my former business, politics, give ourselves too much credit because we stood up to our enemies. Well, standing up to your enemies is fun and probably profitable because you can send out a fundraising letter about how they've attacked you. (laughs) Standing up to your friends is harder. And uh, I, I think in some cases people get mad at me, but that opened the space for other people to say, well, all right, maybe he offended you, but but do it this way. And I think the thing to do, again, is that's why I try to analogize it to the African-American movement. I think that's the ideal for uh, how you try to make changes. I find those comparisons useful. Again, comparing the March on Washington in 63, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, yeah, you remember I have a dream rather than I'd like to F the first lady.
1: <laughs> I remember that other one, too. This is Abby Dees, and I'm talking with former Congressman Barney Frank. You look at the civil rights movement. You're very committed to the civil rights movement generally. And at one point, you actually stated that undoing or challenging the history of racism in this country is a primary goal. Do you still feel that way?
10: Yeah. You know, I had really mixed feelings Uh, the week in June 2013 when the Supreme Court... Did that wonderful thing of overturning DOMA and saying that those of us who were married had the same rights as anybody, of the other married couple, and really struck a, a major blow in favor of equality. And then, either the day before or the day after, I forget, got to the Voting Rights Act and undid so many years of progress. And uh, here's the paradox when our movement for LGBT rights began, and it really begins in 69, there were very few important historical movements that have such a clear cut start date. And uh, I remember that. I was working for the mayor of Boston as the kind of chief liberal in 1968 and 69, and I was eager to find gay organizations because I wanted to meet other gay guys as well as to <laughs> move the cause. There weren't any. By 71, when I came back, I'd gone to Washington to run for the state legislature. There were. I mean, it, it, just, it, it just popped up. And uh, that was very important. We started out behind the African-American civil rights movement, without question, and Today, the African-American community has full legal rights, protections that gay people don't have. It's now illegal to discriminate in employment based on race, not on sexual orientation. But in terms of attitude, sadly, racism has proven to be tougher than homophobia. I think the society has moved further beyond homophobia. Part of that, I think, is simply the nature of, of selfishness in human beings. All of us who are gay and lesbian have straight relatives. But African-Americans don't have uh, white relatives nearly as much. It's partly that sense. Secondly, it is... That it
1: comes down to sort of institutional power.
10: It does. And there's an economic overlay on the racial issue, which reinforces it. You know, we had, after all, 200 years of slavery in this society when white people brought slaves over in the 17th century. Then we had 100 years of legal segregation and only about, what, 70 or 80 years since then where segregation was illegal. For the great bulk of American history, the single biggest period was slavery. Then it was facial segregation. That also embedded economic differences so that the thing got much worse. And yeah, I still believe that fighting racism is the single most important domestic issue. By the way, one of the things that I should note, and I would hope LGBT people would join this, because it's certainly been reciprocal. The African-American members of Congress have been overwhelmingly supportive of our efforts to get equal rights, those of us who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender.
1: That is something you comment about quite a bit in your book. And it seems like you're challenging this recent trope that somehow the LGBT movement and the movement for racial equality are diametrically opposed somehow.
10: No, I find that morally offensive and dangerous. Now, there was this problem. In 2008, in the referendum in California, for a variety of reasons, African-Americans voted a majority against marriage. And in fact, I would say this. Yeah, there is an element in the black community, ministers, who have taken a kind of a fundamentalist view. And over time, African-American fundamentalist Protestant ministers were as bad as the whites. It's to the credit of the African-American members of Congress that they defied that and that despite that, they have been very supportive. And then we've moved beyond that. So if you go to 2012, we would not have won the referendum on behalf of marriage in Maryland, which has a large African-American population, if that population hadn't supported us.
1: What should the LGBT movement be doing for the larger civil rights movement, the movement for social equality? And what should we be learning from the civil rights history that we're not doing right now?
10: That's very important. As I said, learning from the civil rights history is how to be zealous and also disciplined. I wish people would read the book by Taylor Branch about Martin Luther King called Parting the Waters, although I should say I'm doing Mr. Branch a favor, despite the fact that he wrote a book in which he attacked me because Bill Clinton told him that I was the reason he never made Sam Nunn Secretary of State. I mentioned that in the mm-hmm. book. Clinton apparently was going to make Sam Nunn Secretary of State, and I learned that from somebody in the administration, and sent him a memo saying, how dare you? After all, we've done to be supportive, and after all, I put myself on the line to say you're our friend. You can't enable our biggest enemy. But Branch wrote a very good book about Martin Luther King, and there was this trope again of Martin Luther King as the... He always was pushing for more. He was just unyielding in his morality. Yes, he was the great moral leader, and he was a very smart politician. And sometimes he would try it this way and sometimes the other. And sometimes he'd pull back because, you know, in the nature of the case, if you're dealing with a bad reality, it wasn't put there by accident. It's not a snowman. You can just melt. It's got reality, and you have to fight with it. So we can learn from the African-American movement how you can fight for your basic human dignity in a very disciplined and tough way, that those are not opposed. As to what we should do in the future is to say that as we win some of our battles and we're doing well, we shouldn't say, okay, that's it for politics, for example. Uh, And this is something I believe should be the cause right now. I'd like to free up some money that's now being wasted by the public sector so we could put it to better uses. We could do more to build roads. We could lower tuition for students. We could increase medical care for people. And one way to do that is to save money by stopping this war on drugs. Stop prosecuting and locking up people because of their recreational drugs. And there's a reason that's related to what we're just saying there. I think today, nothing in America is more racist in practice than law enforcement with regard to the drug laws, whether it's cocaine, where Crack was treated so much more punitively than powder. Marijuana, where overwhelmingly—look, young black kids are getting arrested for smoking marijuana all the time. All the white kids I know smoke marijuana. Nobody ever, They're not even afraid of the cops. So, um, yeah, I would hope LGBT would kind of repay the support we've gotten by pressing for better fairness in law enforcement, for example, and insisting on opposing these efforts to shut black people off at the polls, which the Republicans have been doing.
1: This is Abby Dees with one of the most influential personalities in American politics, former congressman from Massachusetts, Barney Frank. So that was just part one. He, this was a man who was not hard to talk to. He has a lot to say. So part
2: two was the early days, the little early. Barney <laughs> running down little the streets of, the of Cambridge, <laughs> Barney oh. college.
1: <laughs> and we're still, we are actually arguing in the studio right now still about the Leah Delaria thing on C on SPAN. So whatever she did, it got some attention. Yes, from it all
3: did. Of us. 20 years ago, we're still I'm chatting about it. it. Exactly. And that's the end of our show. Oh. I know. Our thanks to tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkerson, coordinating producer, Steve Price. Social medias are our Maddie McLaughlin and our Rainbow Minute producers, Jed Proctor and Brian Burns.
1: Follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted by noon every Tuesday.
2: Last night, a brand new musical opened on Broadway, Fun Home, based on cartoonist. Alison Bechtel, lesbian cartoonist, her graphic novel memoir of Coming Out. It's been called Remarkably Gratifying, Heart-Rending, Fiercely Humane, and it got a rave from the New York Times. So we close tonight with a song from Fun Home
1: called Changing My Major. Good Good night. Good night. What happened last night?
6: Are you really here? Joan, 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 Joan. Hi, Joan. Don't wake up, Joan. Oh my God, last night. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, last night. I got so excited, I was too enthusiastic. Thank you for not laughing, well you laughed a little bit at one point when I was touching you and said I might lose consciousness, which you said was adorable. And I just have to trust that you don't think I'm an idiot or some kind of an animal. I never lost control due to overwhelming lust. But I must say that I'm changing my major to Joan. I'm changing my major to sex with Joan. I'm changing my major to sex with Joan. With a minor in kissing Joan. Foreign study to Joan's inner thighs. A seminar on Joan in her Levi's. And Joan's crazy brown eyes. Joan, I feel like Hercules. Oh god, that sounds ridiculous. Just keep on sleeping through this and I'll work on calming down So by the time you've woken up, I'll be cool, I'll be collected And I'll have found some dignity But who needs dignity? Cause this is so much better I'm radiating happiness Will you stay here with me for the rest of the semester? We won't need any food We'll live on sex alone Sex with Joan I am writing a thesis on Joan It's a cutting-edge field and my mind is blown I will gladly stay up every night to hone My compulsory skills with Joan I will study my way down her spine Familiarize myself with her well-made outline While she researches mine I don't know who I am I've become someone new. Nothing I just did is anything I would do. Overnight, everything changed. I am not prepared. I'm dizzy. I'm nauseous. I'm shaky. I'm scared. and my heart feels complete let's never leave this room how about we stay here till finals i'll go to school forever i'll take out a dementedly huge high interest loan. because i'm changing my major and Just...